Well, if you would please open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. We took a break from our pastoral sermon series last week, and so we're jumping back into the book of Titus. And I'm really excited for this week because, you know, preaching through the pastoral epistles, they're, they're, they're called that for a reason, right? Um, so we focused a lot on pastors, and, and, and we try to, as best we can, make application of the Word of God to everybody else. Um, but there's just a lot of talk about the pastoral office in these books, and we've seen that very much in the first chapter of Titus. Uh, Paul began, if you recall, in verse 5 by telling us the purpose of this letter, and it was so that Titus could put into motion, could continue to build the churches that Paul had started there, and he begins by essentially telling him uh, how appointing elders is so crucial to this task. And so we see that having healthy elders and healthy, or having healthy elders is good for local churches and it's good for the community around them. But what we're going to see now as we continue into chapter 2 is that simply having uh, good pastors, while that's a necessary and important start, is not enough to have a healthy local church. Uh, simply having good pastors is not going to change a community. We need the whole body of the church to be uh, conformed to the image of Christ. We need the whole body of the church to be healthy if we want to see our community changed, if we want to honor God. And so that's what Paul's going to transition to now in chapter 2. And specifically what we're going to look at is, if you recall, we talked two weeks ago that the place that Titus is doing ministry, he's in Crete on the island of Crete, and uh, the Cretans did not have a good reputation. Uh, we looked at that uh, extensively. The Cretans, their culture uh, was not favored um, by the rest of the world. And the problem is, is that most of these people, all of these people, uh, Titus exception, are Cretans themselves. The Christians who have gotten saved, they're Cretans. They're part of that. And so what Paul's really going to focus on in the beginning of chapter 2 is how is it that Christian Cretans establish their own reputation? How is it that they separate themselves from the reputation of their culture? And I think in that we're going to find a number of indications that Paul gives us for what a, a local church, a healthy local church looks like in general. So, so the context is essentially telling the Cretan church, the Cretan Christians, how to distinguish themselves and set themselves apart from the culture. But I think the application of this text is we're going to find five separate principles or five separate marks, if you will, of a healthy local church. Five marks of a healthy local church. So let's begin in Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. We will read through verse 10, and I would ask if you would follow along, for these are the very words of God. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be a model of good works. Or forgive me, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, 
not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So what Paul essentially does here, not essentially, what he, what he does here is he basically gives holiness instructions for the church, and he does so by categorizing the people of the church and sort of giving them specific instructions per their category. He begins with men and women, and then he moves to slaves. And then within the men and women, he even breaks them up into the older men and women and the younger men and women. So he categorizes the church, and he gives them these holiness instructions. He gives them what it ought, they ought to look like, what they ought to become, specifically in separating themselves from Cretan reputation. And so the, the overall thrust of the passage, if you will, is that local churches need to be filled with holy people and that we glorify and honor the gospel and honor God through our holiness. If you want, that could kind of be like a thesis, if you will. That's kind of Paul's main thrust here, is that local churches would be holy at every level, and that while being holy, we then bring honor to the gospel and honor to God. But I think there's more going on here that we see than just holiness. Now, whether it was Paul's intention to or not, I see five separate things that we can take from this text and apply to our local church to sort of set forth a standard or a goal, if you will, for what, what does it look like to have a healthy local church? What are, we, what are we shooting for? And this may not be exhaustive, but it certainly is a great place to start. And I think the first thing we see, Paul's expectation is a healthy local church would be educational, Right? The, uh, what's on the surface of the text is all of these holiness commands, but notice holiness in Paul's mind is not, is not um, passed on through just osmosis. Right? You, you touch a holy person and then you become holy. Right? H- how do we see consistently throughout the text, how do churches become holy? Well, it primarily begins with education. It begins with learning, right? He, he begins it in verse 1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So in Paul's mind, holiness begins with instruction. We want to be holy, but here's the problem. What does that look like? We live in a culture that has different standards of holiness. Some people, right, the Bible warns us against being a people that call what is evil good and call what is good evil. We live in a culture where people will look at evil things and call it good. So the only way we can be holy is if we are first taught holiness, and so this is really important because I think that we've talked about this before in the pastoral epistles, but I think it's, it's, it's something I've noticed in, 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 in Christianity that sometimes we, we have this bizarre tendency to sort of um, make um, our lifestyle and our theology too separated, right? Like we've got theological churches, churches that are deep and, and they, they get deep into theology. And then we've got these churches that maybe don't care quite as much about the depths of theology, but they just want to love people and they just want to serve their community, but Paul does not jettison these things apart. He, he, he ties them. He welds them together. If you want to be holy and loving and serve your community, you need the theology underneath it. You have to be taught how to do that. So theology and good works come together in an important marriage, and we ought to never separate these things. In verse 1, you, Paul commands Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine, and then he lists all, it's all holiness after that. Holiness is taught. Well, this is, it's not just in verse 1 that we see this, right? We see this again. Look in uh, verse, the end of verse 4 as he's talking about older women. He tells the older women, or forgive me, let's look at verse 3. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slave to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train young women to love their husbands. 
So we see again, Titus is commanded to teach holiness. The more mature women in the church are commanded to teach holiness, to train holiness. We see it again in verse uh, 7 and 8. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So again, Titus is called to teach through modeling. He models holy works so people can learn it, they can see it, and he's to show integrity in his teaching. Right, so all throughout the text is this theme of education, education, teaching, training, teaching, training. Church is not a place where we come just for emotionalism. We, we, we come to church to learn, to be educated. We never want to be a church that we, we say things like, if, if you want to get deep and learn more about theology, you've come to the wrong place. We're just here to win the lost, right? No, we come here to be educated so that we can be holy, so that we can serve the lost in our community. So churches need to be educational, both in, 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 in formal teaching, exhortation, and in personal model training. We want to be learning, and the Christian life is one where we are always learning. You, you are never done learning, and that's important for us because especially if, if you have new Christians and new believers or someone who's just started coming to church for the first time in a long time, they can be really discouraged and intimidated, right? Like, man, these Christians, they have a lingo that I don't understand. They use words that I don't understand. I don't, I'm not catching up. And we don't want to give the impression that we've made it and you haven't, right? What, what helps everyone relax a little bit is realizing that no matter what level you are, we are all constantly learning and we're never done learning. So everyone, we come each and every week to humbly admit, I don't know as much about God as I should, and that's the case for everyone in this room, everyone in every local church, every pastor, every lay member, every person. I don't know as much about God as I should. And so we're just constantly on this journey of education until, as Paul says, we no longer look through a mirror dimly, but when he returns, then we will see him face to face. So we want to be educational, and we want to love that and embrace that, that we are a church that teaches and trains and models. But obviously, that leads us to really what is probably the most important aspect. Churches are not just educational, but a healthy church is holy. Healthy churches, put it simply, holy. These healthy churches are people walking in holiness, obeying God's law. And, and let's break down some of the categories, what that looks like for every person in this church. He begins in verse 2 with the older men. The older men are to be sober-minded dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. We can sort of summarize and explain that by saying that older men, first and foremost, the, what, how the ESV renders sober-minded, um, the word that Paul used definitely has more involved, likely, than just alcohol. There, there is sort of um, being clear-headed all the time, but certainly there's definitely a, a, this concept of not being controlled by alcohol. Um, not allowing your mind to be manipulated by other things, whether it be alcohol or even your emotional circumstances. No, older men are to be clear-headed, sober-minded. I mean, to be in control of their thoughts and in control of their emotions, focused. They are to be dignified, which simply means that older men are not to be silly and flippant and immature, but they are to carry themselves in such a way that distinguishes their lifestyle and behavior from that of immaturity and childlike behavior. They are to be dignified. And self-control, self-mastery 
And I think we understand that in control of their emotions and control of their passions and desires. And they are to be sound in faith, in love and steadfastness, right? So older men need to be trained in the Christian faith. They need to know the Christian faith and they need to know it so well that it actually, uh, it, it, it gives them the strength that they need to endure hardships, Right, this concept, this concept of being of in love and steadfastness is this concept that no matter what comes, no matter the situations that hit us in life, hit us as a church, we need our older men to be the foundations in these time, that they handle adversity, that they push through, that they're, they're patient, they're steadfast, they endure. This is what our older men are called to be. But likewise, in the same way that older men have this unique and important role in the church of being models and teachers, the older women, too, are likewise held to this same position of, of dignity, this same position of modeling for people. It says in verse 3, older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior. This, uh, actually, the, the word reverent that Paul uses, it's, it's very similar to the dignified that he gave to men. Um, so there's kind of a, a same thought process here that women are not to be childish and flippant, but he uses a word that is typically used for um, royalty, female royalty, princesses and prophetesses. Um, so he's essentially calling older women to act like queens, or act like a princess. You're royalty in your church, essentially. He's calling them to be dignified, to be reverent in behavior. And then he sort of explains what that looks like. And, and it's interesting that he, he goes out of his way to talk about slander and drinking wine. Now, there's a couple ways before we talk about this in depth that we can understand this. Either Paul thinks that women are in some way, shape, or form typically more prone to this behavior than men. And that could be the case. And I used to think that growing up, that was what Paul means. But what I actually think is probably going on here is I think a lot of these holiness codes, the things that Paul is specifying, because we know this is not an exhaustive list of holiness. I think the things that Paul is specifying are likely in contrast to Cretan culture. So I think likely, this isn't necessarily an indictment on, on womanhood in general and, and some of the proclivities of womanhood. I think it's an indictment on the older women of Crete. That there was something about the Cretan women where they loved to get together, drink a lot, and talk about people. Uh, as a matter of fact, since they don't live here and you don't know them, I don't mind throwing them under the bus. I grew up with three sisters. <laughs> and we all, have, we all have our guilty pleasures, right? We, I'm sure everyone in here has a music or a TV show or something that you secretly love and you know you probably shouldn't love it. And uh, that, for my sisters, their guilty pleasure was this show growing up, and it's called The Real Housewives. And then it's, uh, it's awful. It's, it's, and, and it, it focuses on women in different cities, so it's like Real Housewives, you know, Baltimore, or whatever it is. And, but anyway, so I didn't particularly like the show, but, you know, they watched it a lot. So there were times that I would sit, and I would see it, and I would watch it. And, and let me explain to you what Real Housewives is all about. Here's the theme of the whole show and of every single episode. Filthy, filthy rich women who have had, filthy, filthy rich women who have nothing better to do except for put on a good television show by drinking a lot of wine, saying awful things about the other women in the show, that gets out and then a fight breaks out. That's the whole show. Filthy women drinking too much, saying what they should not say about other people, and then there's entertaining drama, right? This is sort of an indictment on the Real Housewives. Right. It is not appropriate for older women to have gossip and slander parties 
right? We don't get together, drink a lot of wine, and then start talking about people behind their back. And notice, he doesn't technically use the word gossip. He uses the word slander, which is even harsh, because gossip could still be true. It just doesn't need to be said. Slander is outright lies. Older women are not to behave this way. You are not to be slaves to wine. You can drink wine, you can enjoy wine, but it cannot master you. You have to have mastery over your wine. You have to have mastery over your mouth. What you're saying about other people. Older women set that example in our church for being not controlled by wine and not being gossips and slanderers. They are dignified in their behavior. And then he even goes on to tell them that they are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled and pure. So we'll come back to this concept of teaching, but part of what it means to be a dignified holy woman is that you are interested in discipling the next generation, that you take younger women on and you make it your goal to raise them in the Christian faith. We'll, We'll come back to that one pretty soon. And so now we've transitioned from older women to younger women because he's saying, here's what the older women are to teach the younger women. So we now have the standard of living for younger women. And younger women are supposed to be what? In verse four. Well, they're supposed to be constantly learning about how to love their husbands and children. This is amazing. You know what this tells us? Domesticity, right? Being domesticated, learning to uh, have a family. This does not come naturally. This is something you have to be taught. Isn't that amazing? I think it's really easy for us just to assume the other way around. Like, you know, because the, the, the passions and the feelings we get for our partner, those come very naturally. Someone doesn't have to teach you to be attracted to somebody. Someone doesn't have to teach you to have those feelings where it's like, I gotta be with this person. But once you are with that person, nothing else comes naturally. Right? Being a mother does not come naturally. Being a good mom, being a good Christian wife is not something that you just instinctively know. Paul here is under the assumption that you need to be taught that. And that it's primarily the duty of the older women in the church to teach you, listen, I've been married a long time. So you can make mistakes the way I did, the hard way. Or you can let me teach you. Older women are to be discipling the younger women in what biblical femininity looks like, in what being a mother looks like, being a woman according to God's standard looks like. They are to, right, right, I mean, isn't it sound weird that you have to learn how to love your children? We think, no, I don't. I just naturally, and yeah, there there are natural affections we have, but true biblical love is something you have to learn. You can have intensely strong passions for your children, but it doesn't mean that you're raising them in love. We have to learn how to love our husbands. We have to learn how to love our wives. We have to learn how to love our children. And Paul here says that it is important that the older women take all of the knowledge that they've accumulated over these years, all the knowledge that they've learned from the mistakes that they've made, all the knowledge that they've learned from the church that they've grown up in, and they are ready to pass that on. They are also to learn to be, verse 5, self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. We're actually going to come back to that one of other sermon points. So let's move on to the younger men now. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. This is the shortest one. He doesn't give a lot of lists for this, but self-control, I think, kind of covers a lot of ground, doesn't it? I think we understand that young men especially are prone to letting their passions and their emotions get the better of them. 
Young men have not learned how to control their passions and control their thoughts and control their desires. To be drunk or intoxicated by them, their own selves is common among young men. And so young men are to be taught how to control themselves. What self-control looks like. To be able to say no to myself. And, and, and likely Titus was among the young men. That was probably the group that Titus fell into. And so that's why I think he now reminds Titus of his specific duties as a young man and as a pastor, that he is to show himself in all respect to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So Titus is reminded that you too, as a young man and as a pastor, are to also be dignified and self-controlled, and to be reverent and dignified in your speech, that the theology you teach is holy, and that the way you teach it is holy. And then he moves to what is very controversial, what the ESV renders as bond servants. These were, these were slaves. These were Christian slaves. And I want us to see for a moment how radical what Paul says is. And when I say radical, I mean radical in their day and age, radical in our day and age. And when I say radical, maybe I should say offensive. Because this is really going to go against a lot of what we are taught. But what, what does a Christian, if you're a slave and you have come to know the Lord, what are your expectations now? And notice, it's not revolt. It's quite the contrary. Bond servants or slaves, as your translation might say, are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering but showing all good faith. They are called to win the day through holiness, through love. And, and I think we can imagine, it's hard to put into practice, but I think we can imagine, don't you think holiness, love, and faith are much stronger weapons than swords and guns? And They are overcoming their circumstances. They are overcoming their masters through love. In other words, Paul says, if you're a slave, you need to be better than all the non-Christian Cretan slaves. You need to be the kind of slave that other masters wish they had. It's radical, but I, I, would, I would challenge you. We talked a little bit this about this when slavery came up in First and Second Timothy, that that would transform the institution of slavery far quicker than revolt. Right? They, they are not too pilfering. Slaves have a lot of opportunities to steal. Right? They're in the home a lot, and they're doing their own thing a lot. They're not to steal from their masters. They're not to argue, be argumentative. This is radical. That is what they were called to do in the Greco-Roman world. And, and we see the importance of all of this. We, we have these, these, these holiness standards given to the old men, the young are the old men, the older women, the younger men, the younger women, and the bond servants. But in each and every one, Paul reminds us of why this holiness is so important. In each and every one, he reminds us of why this is so important, right? Look at verse 3 again. Speaking of the older women, and he's, he says older women likewise, so this is, this is why both older men and older women need to be holy, Likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands. Why? So that the word of God may not be reviled. 
The reason we need godly older men, godly older women, and godly younger women is so that the word of God will not be reviled. What Paul is saying is that when you have ungodly women, ungodly men, ungodly younger women, they don't act according to what they say. They don't act according to what they preach. They don't live according to the the sound instructions of the Bible. Then the world around them mocks the Bible. Right? How many times have we heard this in our own culture? People rejecting the Christian faith because the Christians around them just don't seem to really believe it. The word of God is protected when we actually live it, when we actually believe it, when we actually love people and treat people well, then as the book of Matthew says, Jesus says, they will look upon your good works and glorify God in heaven. He says uh, something extremely similar in verse 7 when talking about Titus and the young men. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Again, what's the value of holiness? When the culture tries to accuse us of being hypocrites, when they try to accuse Redeemer Christian Fellowship of some sin sin or some glaring reason why they're not gonna go to church, the shame is on them because what they're saying has no foundation in reality. We put them to shame by forcing them to lie. But what we don't want to do is give them a true excuse to not come. Because those people genuinely are hypocrites. Because those people genuinely don't really believe the Bible. When we act in holiness, when we pursue God's law, the culture will still likely accuse us of things, but the shame and embarrassment will be on them because it's lies. You see, this theme, we are protecting our reputation, and in that process, we're protecting God's reputation. And again, when he mentions this about bondservants, verse 9, they are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Why? So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That word adorn was used in the Greek language to describe the process of jewelers um, placing their diamonds out for display. When slaves love their masters, especially the masters that didn't deserve it, what they were essentially doing is they were showing through their life, through their radical love, their radical forgiveness, their radical faith, and undeserved love and undeserved faith, undeserved obedience, they were essentially saying, look at how beautiful the doctrine of God is. Come see the glory of the gospel. Come see the glory of God's law. They put the diamonds of God's law out on display. So we see that this whole passage is covered in be holy for the sake of your reputation and the sake of the word of God's reputation. You see, we need to be holy for our community, that they might see it, they might desire it, and that God's word would not be contradicted by our lives. Churches are called to be educational. Churches are called to be holy. A healthy church will value education. A healthy church will value holiness. But then let's continue to move on. We still have three more points. And this one is probably going to be the most controversial of all of them. And I purposefully picked a word that I thought would get under your skin. (laughs) Healthy local churches are patriarchal. Healthy local churches are patriarchal. We saw in 1 Timothy that only pastors were allowed to be pastors. So the local church has a patriarchal government. The highest authority is limited to men. But we see that now, even in the family, the same thing is happening. Look at verse 3 again. 
Older women are likewise to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home. Let's stop with that one. This one's important. This text does not mean it's sinful for a woman to have a job. That's not what this text means. Uh, we see in Proverbs 31, it's a, you know, you hear Christians talk about be a Proverbs 31 woman, right? Uh, it's because in Proverbs 31, you can read it on your own time, there's sort of this display of what a godly woman looks like. And one of the things she does is she sells things in the marketplace. She makes things and sells things. Uh, so is it sinful for a woman to have a job? Absolutely not. That is, that is not the case. But here's what we do know from Scripture, though, that homemaking, working at the home, or your translation might say being busy at home, but whatever your translation says, that that you would take care of the home or that you would work at home or be busy at home, the home is the woman's priority. That is her domain of authority that we never see in Scripture necessarily given to the men. So a woman is absolutely allowed to have a job. She's allowed to work, but homemaking is the woman's job. And so I would just recommend this to you, that if you are a woman and you have found yourself in a career where your gifts are being utilized, glory to God. Glory to God. But if that career is so dominating that it has stripped you of your ability to manage your home and raise your children, you need to quit. And your husband, you need to make whatever you can to quit. It is the woman's job to be a homemaker. And one of the things that I really want us to understand is whether a woman does this with a job or not, I want us to understand that we have to get to the place where we see this as a glorious thing and not a thing we have to be embarrassed to say. Paul didn't flinch when he told women to be workers at home. He didn't flinch. He's not embarrassed by it. Right? We need to see this as a glorious thing. I, let me ask you this. I'm going to ask rhetorical. This is, I'm, I'm not asking for true audience participation, but I want all the women in this room who have children right now or who have raised children, can you honestly say that any vocational work you've done has been more important than that? Are, are we honestly willing to think that, that these vocations are more important than providing a godly home for our families and raising and nurturing and forming our children? I mean, think about it, women. You, you have basically, God basically made you uh, uh, like, like magicians and wizards I mean, I try so hard to, to, to study and understand the development of human beings from conception to birth. It's, it's amazing. Your bodies are creationally designed to nurture, protect, grow, and, and, and create human beings. And then after you carry, create, nurture, protect, they're born, and then there's this glorious opportunity to continue that. We, we need to see this. This is a glorious thing. The highest calling outside of being a Christian is raising children. And you'll find this is, this is similar in men, right? We, it's interesting. You'll notice, you know, we, have, we live in a social media day and age. So people have social media profiles. And a lot of times what people present on their social media in the order they present it says a lot about what they value. And so, and I, I knew that. So when I set up my social media, I made sure to put who I was in its proper place. Christian, husband, pastor. The most important thing about me is my relationship with the Lord. The second most important thing about me is not my job. It's my relationship to my wife. That is far more important, far more valuable than my job. 
And I can tell you, if the Lord ever blesses us with children, that's going to jump being a pastor too. Your relationship to your family, your relationship to the Lord is far more important than your vocation. So please do not take this as an offensive thing that God says if you have to pick between a job and homemaking, you need to pick homemaking. That's a glorious thing and it's a glorious work. Women should be helped and applauded for their work of loving their children and raising their children. Notice we live in a society with, where single motherhood is rampant. Single fatherhood is not that rampant. That tells you something about how God has designed women to love their children, to stick by their children. Raising children and creating a home is valuable work. Our, our culture calls that patriarchy, but we call that glory. But we see something even more offensive than calling the women to work at home. We see also that they are called to be submissive to their own husbands. Verse 5, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. Again, that's a very, very controversial thing in our day and age. But the Bible says that there is a governmental structure to the home. There is a governmental structure to the home and that women are called to submit to their husbands. Paul says that without flinching. Now here's the thing, we, we, there's, there's more to this though than what people who hate the Bible would want to come in and make us think. In, in, in no way, shape, or form are we devaluing the role of women and specifically devaluing the role of women in the church. Because I remind us yet again what the end of verse three says. They are to teach what is good. We live in a very egalitarian culture which has unfortunately convinced women that if you have some kind of gift of teaching, then you ought to be a pastor and that any church who doesn't make your teaching gift a professional vocational uh, office or title, then they have somehow diminished your role. But Paul is obviously under the understanding that a woman does not have to be raised to the pastoral authority to have her teaching gifts utilized. Paul here, the words of this patriarchal Paul, is word for word calling women to teach. Women are teachers of the Christian faith. He's not silencing them. He's not telling them you can't know theology and you shouldn't know deep theology because it's not your job to pass it on anyway. But Paul sees such an important, valuable role for Christian women to know Christian faith, to know doctrine, to know holiness, so that they can gather the young women in their churches and be teachers and pass that on. See, Paul still sees an invaluable role for women. Where would our churches be and where would our families be without godly women to teach young women and create homes and nurture children? Our society would be even more out of control than it is. This is invaluable to the life of any culture. This is invaluable to the life of any church. Women are called to be teachers. And I would remind you, by the way, this will be the last thing I say. I've, I've spoken too long on this point. The very culture that wants you to hear all that I've said and be offended by it, that culture can't even tell you what a woman is. They can't even tell you what a woman is. And then they expect you to take morality lessons for what womanhood and femininity in the family and the church looks like. I, I saw a video of girls at a woman's march, you know, marching for women's freedom and marching for women. And this guy went and he would ask them about whether, then he asked them a simple question, what is a woman? 
He'd ask them, why are you marching? They'd say things like, well, because the gender pay gap and women aren't being paid fairly. They said things like, because the patriarchy, women are being treated fairly. Like women this, women that. Oh, by the way, what's a woman? Oh, you know, any, you know, anyone who wants to define themselves as a woman is a woman. There goes all the gender pay gap stuff. Because there's no such thing as gender anymore. How can there be a gender pay gap? There's no such thing as gender. How about all the men who are getting paid more just identify as women, and now women are getting paid more? They can't even tell you what a woman is, and yet they think they can kick the door down of 2,000 years of Christian history and say, you, treat, you mistreat women, and your understandings about women is patriarchal and offensive. I'm not taking lessons from the person who doesn't even know what a woman is about what a woman ought to be. But here are the last two. My favorite ones, if I can be so bold. The church is called to be familial. What that means is the church is called to be a family. The church is called to be a family. Here's why I say that. We talked about the value of teaching. We saw that in verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then all throughout, he goes and talks about how holiness is taught. But if you notice how holiness is being passed on, as I'm reading the text, doesn't seem like it's very often coming from a classroom setting. I think that's part of it. But holiness is something that we're constantly teaching. The Christian faith is something we're constantly teaching. And it doesn't seem that every single time that's called to be in a classroom setting. Right? The older women are supposed to be, as we read, teaching the younger women. And the older men are supposed to be teaching the younger men. And let me submit that. That has to happen a lot more than just for an hour and a half every Sunday. Especially if we hold to what Paul says in 1 Timothy that women can't be pastors. Now they've lost their opportunity to do what he's commanded here, which is to teach. You see, Paul is under the understanding that Christianity is passed on far more just through our life together than it is through our formal settings. That younger men are spending time with older men constantly so that they're constantly learning and constantly having this modeled. And the the younger women in the church, because remember, this is not limited to just their children. The women are called to take the younger women of the church So the women here, Paul's understanding is that they're going to be spending a lot of time with the younger women who aren't their children. You see, this necessitates, this passage, that the church is spending organic, natural, consistent time with one another. Otherwise, when are the older women teaching younger women anything? We cannot deduce Christianity to an hour and a half on Sundays. Don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to, to, to um, you know, devalue that. This is very important what we're doing here. The Bible commands us and prescribes. This is very important. And education does happen in formal teaching settings like this and like Wednesday night. Those are part of the Christian life, but that's not all the Christian life is. We are called to be spending valuable time with each other outside of Sunday so that we can teach and model. You know, I, I didn't have much time and I felt bad because I showed up late and left early but yesterday I, I came to help Marty and, you know, put the shed up. And I just can't tell you how much fun I had just hanging out with Drew and hanging out with Rodney and hanging out with Marty. It was just a valuable time of just spending time with my church. And it was not like, oh, Colin's here. Let's sit down and learn a lesson. I was learning things about manliness, about the Bible, just, just through living together. Right? Christianity is... The local church is a family. 
We spend time with each other and we pass this Christian faith on, yes, in formal teaching settings, but also by just living together, spending time with one another. Churches are supposed to be familial. This means that in our day and age, we have to work really hard to overcome the busyness of 21st century life. But more on that when we conclude. Lastly, I apologize, I'm running much later than I wanted to. Uh, Last point, the church... A healthy local church, what does it look like? It's educational, it's holy, it's patriarchal, it's familial, and it's multi-generational. Notice how in order for a truly healthy church, for healthy discipleship to take place, we have to have two kinds of people. We have to have men and women, but they have to be separated into two categories, older and younger. If all you have is older, that's a problem. But if all you have is younger, that's also a problem. It is the goal in every local church to be multi-generational, to have people of all ages, older, mature people, speaking life and educating and training the younger, and the younger people speaking energy and joy and excitement into the older. We want to see babies in this church. We want to see children in this church. We want to see high schoolers and college students and young adults and mid-adults and, and senior saints. We want every age to be represented in our church all the time. Because Paul here is assuming that that's what a healthy church is, older, discipling younger, mature, discipling the immature. It is crucial to this entire text. And let me just tell you why this is so important, because I'm in this generation, so I can be harsh. I think that there's one generation in the church today that gets this and one that doesn't. I have never been in a church setting where older people have been discouraged when they've seen younger people come through the doors. I have never been in a church setting. I have always seen older people so thrilled when they see young people coming in and worshiping. But unfortunately, that's not reciprocated on the other end. I very seldomly see younger people walk into a church and go, oh man, everyone here is older than 60, yay. I know people, they will walk into a church and if there's too many people with gray hair and the music isn't loud enough, you won't see them again. And folks, that's a problem. Because they're attracted to just hanging out with their own peers all the time. They're attracted to a certain style of music that they've lost the value of having older people who have walked through life teach them things. They see gray hair as, 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 as a warning sign. When Proverbs 16.31 says, gray hair is a crown of glory and it is gained in a righteous life. Young people need to come in and see gray hair and realize I'm among royalty in this room. But it doesn't work that way. I was, I was actually listening to a podcast of a church where it's a huge church that has tons of people on staff and not a single person on staff is older than 40. And they've been criticized for that a lot. So they dedicated a whole podcast to that. And here's what they said. They said, I know that maybe bothers people, but here's why we do that. Here's why we think it's so important for us to have so many young people involved in in leadership. It's because we think it's important to invest in the next generation. We think it's important to care about the next generation. And folks, that's a complete non sequitur. Let me tell you this. I agree the next generation is the most important generation. I agree we should always be focused on them and we should care about focusing on them. But how do we focus on them? 
by giving them older people to disciple them. That's how we invest in them. That's how we take them seriously. Rather, they're saying we care so much about the younger generation, the next generation, that we're going to take the godly men and women out of their lives and let them fend for themselves. That's not investment. That's abandonment. We want to glory in young people finding discipleship in older people. And this is also a a huge problem I see in, in youth groups today where we have essentially catechized, we have trained kids that this is what church looks like. You're surrounded by your peers. It's the blind leading the blind. Your whole discipleship is coming from people who don't know anything more than you do. And then they go off to college and what resembles church more, the local church in their area or the party scene? When they went to youth group their whole lives, where all they did was have fun with their friends. So the party scene looks more like church now because they were never taught and educated about how important it is to go to a church that has older people ready to show you something. I've only been married for a year and a half. And I can already attest to you, and my wife can too, that marriage has been honestly much harder than we anticipated. And so let me tell you what that's done for me. Every time I meet someone who's been married longer than me, two years, five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, maybe 50 years, maybe 60 years, You know what I think? I can't imagine how much that person has to teach me. (laughs) I can't begin to imagine the hardships that I'm not seeing right here. I just see a loving couple holding hands. What I'm not seeing is years and years of brokenness and difficulty and tragedy and hardship. And they've overcome it. And I haven't. I want to be around those people. I read a news story this week, two, last week. This is not satire. This is a true story. There's a Methodist church somewhere, I think it was Missouri, I can't remember where, that was losing members, shrinking. So the Methodists, you know, they have a, a, an organizational structure. They called a group in to come and do uh, church revitalization. And initially what that looked like was they remodeled the church, they changed the music style of the church, and then guess what? This is a true story. I'm not making this up. Then guess what they did? They asked all the older people, the faithful ones who had been going to that church for years, they asked them to stop coming for a three-month period so that they could attract a younger crowd. They asked them to keep tithing. (laughs) They could come back eventually. Right, but these young people are they're not walking into a church to see a bunch of old people. Paul wanted young people to walk into a church and see a bunch of old people. May it never be our heart's desire to fill this building with youth. Don't get me wrong, having peers is really important. I pray we we have a, a generational gap that we're lacking. Right? We we have lots of babies and we have young and we have adults and we've got older, but we, we, we have, you know, the high school, college range. I wish we had more. I wish that there was, having Christian friends your age is important. So I'm praying for that. It does matter. But may we never lose the value of multi-generational churches. And here's how I want us to summarize all these points. Right, we talked about five different things and here's the danger of this sermon. It can be really easy to hear all this and start feeling really guilty about our church, right? I think we have a great church, but... I don't think any church claims to be perfect. You know, it's easy to, man, 
I feel really guilty. I haven't spent a lot of time with my church family this week. It's, and, 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 and if we do that too much, it, we can actually really grow kind of hostile to one another. Like, yeah, you know, now that I think about it, when is the last time the older folks have offered to spend time with me? We can grow bitter toward one another. But I would encourage you, that's not how we apply this text. To summarize it, I want to read something that I read this week that was really helpful. We can love our vision of what a church should be more than we love the actual people who comprise it. We can be like the unmarried man who loves the idea of a wife, but who then marries a real woman and finds it harder to love her than the idea of her. This is an implicit danger for all of us who have learned much from God-given books and conferences and ministries about healthy churches. We start loving the idea of a healthy church more than the actual church God has placed us in. We should love people because they belong to the gospel, not because they have kept the law of a healthy church, although that law may be good and biblical. It means that we should love them because of what Christ has done and declared, not because of what they do. If you love your children, you want them to be healthy. But if you love your children, you love them whether they are or not. So a sermon like this, yes, it is a time for self-reflection. It is a time for what are my weaknesses? Let's try to improve those. Let's try to spend more time with each other. Let's try to increase our knowledge of the world. We want to excel in all of these things, but at no point in time are we to grow bitter and hostile because we're not as good as we could be. We need to love each other. God has put us together. We have come here to love each other, to spend time with one another, and by the power of the Spirit, grow in holiness. By the power of the Spirit, change our community with our church witness.